What do you want? And what are you willing to endure to achieve that? What do you want? And what are you willing to endure to achieve it? In 1945, Viktor Frankl wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. The book was translated into over 20 languages. It sold more than 24 million copies. And he wrote the book to explore man's will to survive. He wrote it shortly after he himself was released from a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. He saw horrors. In that camp, he was not a Christian, but among other basic observations he made about survival and the will to survive, he argued that retaining a sense of purpose was necessary to surviving in those camps. He was in Auschwitz, he was in Dachau, other camps. He, He wrote that the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. He said some kept going because they had a child or a spouse, or some thought that there was some unique contribution they could make on the other side of the camp. He was an accomplished psychologist before he was taken prisoner, and he He noted as he worked in a camp hospital that the death rates especially spiked between Christmas and New Year's because so many prisoners naively believed they would be freed by Christmas. They would lose hope, he wrote, and simply die. In his book, he cited Frederick Nietzsche, who wrote, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Of course, what The why is matters eternally. I think what attracts us and so many wanted to read this book for is because someone like Frankel wrestled with evil at its very darkest and worst. This was not done in the cleanliness of an academic classroom, but personally, up close, What does the cross of Christ teach us about the biggest questions of our lives? What did Jesus want? What was Jesus willing to endure to achieve it? Uh, This morning, we are going to begin slowly walking through the darkest hour of Jesus's life. As he goes to the cross, when he would face horror and unimaginable darkness and evil at the deepest level. And it's as my hope that as we do this, some of you will be freshly astonished at the glory of Jesus Christ, your Savior. And then others of you will see for the first time the glory of Jesus Christ. So turn to John 18. We're going to read the first 14 verses where Jesus is betrayed. And he is arrested. Look down at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Here's the main point I want you to get this morning. Jesus endured injustice. Jesus endured injustice because he was committed to accomplishing his and the Father's plan. Jesus endured injustice. Why? Because he was committed to enduring the, the Father and his plan. Let's slowly walk through this, seeing first Jesus preparing for his betrayal and arrest. Preparing for his betrayal and arrest in the first three verses. Preparation. We come to this chapter and John begins it by saying, when he had spoken these words, he has now prayed for himself. He's prayed for the disciples. He's prayed for all of those who will believe in him through their word. And now he's physically going out to face the hour. So here we have a dramatic scene change from private preparation to public action. John is setting the scene. He went to a familiar place across the Kidron Valley to a garden, which he and his disciples then entered. John tells us Judas knew about the garden, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. I wonder what the mood or the prevailing atmosphere was that night among the disciples. They'd already been with Jesus in private. He'd washed their feet. He had prayed with them in significant ways. They'd been very prepared for that evening. Jesus himself prepared them. He taught them very clearly that the good shepherd must lay his life down for the sheep. The son of man must be lifted up. He had washed their feet, not just to show them the depths to which they themselves needed to be 
absurd but the depths to which he was willing to go to serve them. And Jesus deliberately went to that garden. Now we know from Matthew and Mark that the garden was called Gethsemane. And it must have been a place that Jesus and the disciples had frequented many times over the years, probably as they went in and out of Jerusalem for the festivals. The fact that they entered into it has led some commentators to suggest it was a possibly a private garden, and it was probably owned by someone wealthy who had allowed Jesus and the disciples to make frequent use of it. I think the point is, Jesus could have gone somewhere else. He could have hidden, but he deliberately went to this place that his disciples, including Judas, were familiar with because Jesus had prayed and prepared for this hour. So for all that's about to unfold, this night and the the day ahead, remember Jesus deliberately walked into that garden. Different people will play different parts, but all of them are being used to fulfill the purposes and plans of the Father and the Son from before the world began. Jesus deliberately walked into that garden for your salvation. It's his deliberateness in all of this that strikes me. How determined Jesus is to fulfill the scriptures, to accomplish salvation. That's what he wanted. Think about that. Of all people, Jesus will know the deepest evil. He will experience the darkest evil in the world. And where is his sight? On salvation. So for Jesus, the the greatest evil in the entire universe is human sin. It runs much deeper. It's far more serious than the world believes. And Jesus clearly understood that salvation, if there would be salvation at all, it hangs on him. And you can disagree with him, but you should not misunderstand him. For you, if you're a Christian, I think that This deliberate commitment to salvation should raise your sights above whatever present circumstances are in your life even now. Think about the deliberateness of your Savior to do good to you. And then you should be reasoning he's no less deliberate in his good to me now. And that's true whether you fully understand that or not. We see clearly how prepared Jesus was for this hour, how unprepared his disciples were. They're following him, but they don't understand. Judas, too, had been prepared. If it was Jesus who prepared his disciple, Judas was prepared in a wholly different way. We read just a few chapters before this one back in John 13, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The disciples prepared by Jesus, Judas prepared by the devil. And unlike the disciples, Judas had prepared for this evening. He'd done some very significant work. Verse 3, he had procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. 
They went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, of all the gospel writers, it's John alone who uniquely tells us that it was a band of soldiers, which would have been the Romans, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. It's a joint effort. It's the Romans. It's the state. It's the Jews. It's the religious authorities. The band of soldiers of the cohort, it's made up of 600 soldiers. There's no way 600 soldiers went that night, but certainly a sizable number would have gone. City was crowded. They clearly thought this could cause a riot. Judas prepared. They took every precaution. Judas deliberately became the human agent to facilitate this meeting. And John, our writer, who's been so concerned with light and darkness in this gospel, wants us to understand this event happened at night, in the darkness. And those who came to arrest Jesus did so at night, because like so many others in this gospel, they are in the darkness. Tortures, the lanterns that they brought with them were enough to make their way in the night. They weren't enough to see what they needed to see, and the weapons. They came completely prepared for a fight, totally unprepared for the greater battle in which they were taking part. Judas has been prepared. Judas has prepared. It's his work. It's the work of Satan. Who is Judas? Judas. Well, John continues to tell us he's the one who betrayed Jesus. He doesn't just tell us his name, verse 3, verse 5, the one who betrayed him. Betrayal first depends on friendship. Only a friend can betray a friend. So as deliberately, as faithfully as Jesus walks into this garden, Judas's betrayal would be the first and clearly significant bit, a personal loss he knew. Think about the fact that Judas and Jesus shared meals together. They laughed together. They had conversations together. There would have been stories of their relationship growing all through the years, all the way to this ultimate moment that would forever define their relationship. To accomplish salvation, Jesus was willing to endure very serious personal cost. So easy from a distance to minimize the very human Jesus who was willing to suffer, to be tempted, to be very personally betrayed. When you pray, when you think of the Savior, your Savior, remember he knows very personally the pains of life in this world. He's not read about it in a textbook, he doesn't know it from afar. He felt it in his being. And Jesus forgives people who betray. Some of you have betrayed people. Friends, Jesus forgives that sin that you think is unforgivable. It doesn't minimize the consequences, but there is full forgiveness. And Jesus comforts you who have been betrayed. He's walked in your shoes. If you've known this, you should lean into Jesus. You should entrust all of this to him. 
He, he didn't save his people from afar. He, he came very personally in, so near that it hurt him personally at great cost. It's at verse three that this scene is set in the garden. All the preparations for betrayal and arrest have been made. We know what went into these parties going into that garden that night. And we've been in this gospel. We know how much has happened in private before all of this in public. The son has prayed to the father for his disciples in front of them. Judas has lost a battle in his own heart that is about to prove catastrophic. The chief priest and the officers who had plotted and planned in secret have found Judas to be a willing participant in their plan. So as we look at this scene, remember, private battles matter. It's always the battle in private that will lead to your either public faithfulness or public unfaithfulness. What you know that maybe no one else here knows. I wonder what that is for you. And without a doubt, for some of you, this is private faithfulness. It's prayer that you are longing to see a public answer to. It can range in a, a number of ways. This should encourage you to keep going. You realize that Jesus is in this garden facing this trial, this injustice, because he's been faithful, not unfaithful in private. Do not believe the lie that your suffering or trial has always come because of punishment or unfaithfulness. It's not the case for Jesus. Father sees, he knows, he rules over every moment in person. Is that you? If it is, God the Father is very kindly forcing you to decide whether you will trust him. He's forcing you to determine whether you will look to him or not to meet your needs. He is forcing you to stare at his character and to trust he's good. And he has you. He wants you to know he is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He wants you to believe that before you believe all the circumstances that are around you. On that night, God was acting in faithfulness and sovereign power and wisdom in response to, not in ignorance of, Jesus' own private battle. Private faithfulness will lead ultimately to public faithfulness and even fruitfulness for the kingdom. But of course, there's another side. Judas treasured this world more than Jesus. The religious leaders treasured their pride and their place. The battle waged slowly in the heart led to public disaster. What is that battle for you? What is it that you are so tempted to believe is better than Jesus? And his word. This sermon confronts you to say it's not worth it. See beyond it to what you cannot see. Uh, For these men, 
They were going in the dark to arrest the very Son of God. What's hidden from your view on the other side of the temptation that you're playing with that you can't see? Your private battle matters. And in this world, your private battle isn't private after all. There's an entire unseen realm that sees everything. Faithfulness celebrated by mighty angels. Your secret harboring of that anger. Your pursuit of that lust. Your cultivation of that pride in your heart is a consequential act of cosmic significance in a universe in which an unseen battle is raging in this world. It's striking to me how much happened in private that led to this very public meeting between these peoples and groups that night. And yet it happened. Betrayal, an arrest that will have consequences far beyond what any one person involved could have ever fathomed. Sin is always like that. You might control what you do. You do not control all the consequences and every bit of the fallout that comes from it. For them, their wickedness would not have the last word. Over and above them all stands the Father and the Son who prepared and planned this from all eternity. Preparation for betrayal and arrest and then the endurance of it. That's the second point. Enduring betrayal and arrest, enduring it, verses 4 through 12. John keeps Judas's identity before our eyes. He's the betrayer. He's also very clearly keeping before our eyes who Jesus is. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He goes into the garden. When they come near to it, he goes to them. He did not wait for them to come to him. We read in John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So his life and his freedom are not being taken from him. Fundamentally, he's laying his life down of his own accord. Unbeknownst to everyone, he's dictating the events of the night. They came, didn't they, with their torches and their lanterns to find him. But Jesus, knowing the hour had come, came forward to do what? Reveal himself to them. And he asked them, whom do you seek? I mean, do you just feel the trust, the rock solid confidence and hope that he has in the control of the father? He can see so clearly behind what's in front of him, his enemies and these authorities to his sovereign God, the Father, who's above them. He's trusting in him. You fear people? Would you have feared people that night? Do you fear circumstances? Do you fear what you see? Learn from Jesus. That the antidote to that is the fear of God. How do you grow in the fear of God? You know God as he is. I've never forgotten this 
remarkable story in the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Near the beginning, he recounts a conversation he had with a friend who is a professor. And he said, I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited the prospects of academic advancement by clashing with authorities over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I've known God and they haven't. The remark was a mere parenthesis, a passing comment on something I had said, but it has stuck with me. And it set me thinking, not many of us, I think, would ever naturally just say that we have known God. Wherever that faithful Christian man was, his higher confidence was in the fact that he knew God. And when you know God, you have a confidence this world cannot touch, even when the world opposes you. Bigger knowledge of God, a right knowledge of God destroys fear because what does that do? It makes whatever that fear is, whether it's people, whether it's circumstances, whether it's the unknown future, it makes it smaller in view of who God is. Do you know God? Last week, we saw that Jesus prayed for an otherworldly unity and an otherworldly glory. Here, I hope that you see he himself has an otherworldly confidence that you're meant to have because you can say, you know, God, that's what's marking Jesus off here from even the disciples. How much more faithful, how much more fruitful we would be the more we know our God. I would challenge you to that end to dive deeper in doctrinal study of God. In the Christian life, your mind needs to be stretched so that your heart will be. Sound knowledge of God will lead to communion with God, will lead to fellowship and enjoyment with God. And you know this because it's like that on a human level. It's in a human relationship when you really get to know someone, hopefully, it builds affections. It builds love. Same is true with God. Jesus is going forward with confidence. Whom do you seek? He knew his father. They didn't. What you think of God shapes and changes everything about you. And growth comes through knowing him as he is. So whatever you do in life, pursue knowing God. Just a brief word to the students. I know that a number of you are studying things like biology or physics, algebra, calculus. You're reading works of literature that you like and you don't like. You're, you're thinking complicated things about history. You can push yourself in knowing God, pushing deeper. If you think about your life, all of us, what are you doing now to ensure that in 10 years you've stretched your heart and mind to know God more? That you could say confidently, I know God. And so I'm not concerned about that. Jesus knows God. It's what's pushing the way he acts in the garden. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Judas was there standing with him. This gospel has been filled with these I am statements of Jesus. And John intentionally shows us one more. John does not, like Matthew and Mark, highlight Judas's kiss. I think John is highlighting his authority 
and his self-revelation. They came looking for him, but it's Jesus who's revealing himself to them. In one sense, he was answering their question. I'm the guy. But in this gospel that has double meaning again and again, he's answering in an eternally more profound way to them as well. The, the he in, in your English translation is supplied. It's simply I am in the original. Ego eimi. He's not hiding himself physically or spiritually. And remarkably, when he answers them, John tells us they drew back and they fell to the ground. There's some ambiguity here. I think John means for us to sit in it. It's most likely they fell back in the sense that they are astonished. Jesus identified himself in the same way that Yahweh alone identifies himself. I am is the way God repeatedly refers to himself in the middle part of the book of Isaiah. Jesus has done this before, John 8. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Remember, the religious authorities themselves had to ask Judas to help them identify him, which means that they didn't have the same familiarity with him as others. And I think for him to identify himself in this way shocked them. They fell back. And yet in falling back, they acted far better than they could have known. The same John who writes this gospel tells us in Revelation 1 that when he saw the risen Christ, Revelation 1, 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Whether it's the Old or the New Testament, again and again in the scriptures, when men are confronted with divine revelation, they fall down. In this moment when Jesus was being sought for his own arrest, he reveals himself and they fell to the ground. Once again, in John's gospel, someone is doing far better than they could have understood they were doing. If they had had a deeper understanding of what it was Jesus just said to them, revealed to them, they would have changed their plans. Instead of arrest, they would have fallen down in worship. But they're in the dark, and they can only see that night by torches and lanterns. They do not see. They do not see the world by the one who is the light of the world. And so Jesus that night asked them again whom they sought. Again, said Jesus of Nazareth, he reiterates, I am he. And so he said, if it's me, then let the other men go. They had clearly in some way taken the disciples. They were holding them. And notice Jesus is continuing to care for them at his personal expense. John tells us, verse 9, this was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Uh, This keeping here is from them being arrested. Maybe their death. But I think, again, it gospel so rich with double meaning and symbolism that it's symbolizing Jesus substituting himself, protecting them from physical death. It's an enactment of what he's about to do for them spiritually. I think it's remarkable, the high view of Jesus's words. It was not what was already spoken in scripture, but what Jesus said that had been fulfilled by what he spoke. Hours before in his prayer, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Charles Spurgeon writes, it's not the age of God's word, but the truth of it that constitutes its power. 
What Christ had said that night in prayer was as true and as much the word of the king as what God had spoken by his spirit through holy men ages before. The word of Jesus, the most certain and authoritative word in our universe. He backs his own words. There's not one word of God that will ever fall to the ground. The disciples are afraid. They're going to be afraid. They have no idea how protected they were spiritually that night. They won't always be protected physically, but they will be spiritually. Why? Because of the word and the work of their master and their friend, Jesus. He stands up for them. He stands in place of them. A vivid picture of what he's about to do when he's lifted up for them in their place on the cross. He won't lose one of them. If you know Jenny and me, you know we have spent way too much in, a lot time in our own lives looking for stuff. Uh, that's keys, that's phones, that's watches, that's a wedding ring. That's even children. All of those have varying value. Not Jesus. He keeps us. He doesn't lose us. What he does is he frees us to lose our lives in faithfulness to him. Do you really think Jesus doesn't see your faithfulness? You think he's lost sight of your circumstances or where you are, who you are? Don't you see how he kept you in that season in your own life that you look back on now? Darkness or wondering or worry might have been hard, probably was painful. But wasn't he good to you? Even in the night night with all of its pressures and betrayal, it's his disciples and they're good at the front of his mind. I think you should just be amazed as you see again who your savior is. This is not him in the abstract. This is him up close in a very hard situation. Hundreds of soldiers, religious authorities. He's looking at Judas who's betraying him. And it's weak, frail disciples that are on his mind. No one like Jesus, selflessly giving his life away for the good of others while these evil men are taking his life away from him. Have you forgotten how good Jesus is to you? All this courage, what do his disciples do? They again show. They don't understand. Peter, verse 10, takes what is one of the most well-known foolish actions in the Bible. I mean, it wasn't even strategic. He didn't have a chance. Never mind the fact that Jesus has taught him again and again, he's going to the cross. So full of zeal is Peter, so empty of wisdom. He chooses the sword because for Peter, at that point, there is no way that suffering is the way. His sword here was more like a a short dagger, probably beneath his clothing. It was definitely meant to kill someone by striking them on the head. It's most likely that something happened. Maybe uh, the servant dove in front of someone or something happened, but his ear only got cut off. It doesn't matter. Peter had not accepted the fact that Jesus must die. That salvation will come by suffering, not the sword. It will come not by human power, but by weakness. 
John doesn't report what the other accounts do, that Jesus healed the servant's ear, Malchus. What Jesus did do is he put himself in between Peter and the soldiers who were inevitably ready to arrest him or worse. And he commands Peter, put away the sword. Why? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Peter's entire misunderstanding here is seen in that fact. He thinks this is something between the Roman soldiers, the Jewish authorities, and Jesus. Jesus understands this is something between him and the Father. The cup that the Father has given me. He's in on this plan to drink the cup. The Father has given him the cup. The question is, what's the cup? We read in Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Prophet Isaiah declares, Isaiah 51, 7, wake yourself, wake yourself. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, the cup is filled with the wrath of God. Peter, the others so afraid of the Roman soldiers, Jewish authorities, not Jesus. At the forefront of his mind is the cup. What did he want? And what was he willing to endure? Yes, the cross. But many Roman criminals endured the cross. Jesus alone was willing and qualified to drink the cup. He was willing to endure the greatest earthly suffering, to suffer in himself, drinking the wrath of God. He did not run from the cup. God's wrath is not his out-of-control anger. It is good wrath. It is always righteous opposition to evil and sin, not in the abstract, but personal sin and unrighteousness that all of us have committed. And so the very goodness of God is seen in the fact that he rightly opposes and judges evil. And God is determined to set his world right. Now, what's amazing about the gospel is that God the Father, God the Son, planned from all eternity to come into this world full of sinners that do not deserve God's grace, that deserve his wrath, and for Jesus to take this wrath on himself. That's the heart of the gospel. The cross of Christ is telling us how, yes, loving and gracious God is, and also how serious sin is in this world, and also how seriously God has worked to judge it in Jesus. He came to live, to die, to put himself in the place of sinners. Now, there's no way we would make that story up. It's too good. And because God alone could, could do this, God in the flesh could die this death. He was raised from death. Prove that what he had done was enough. 
Nothing could be added to it. Nothing could be taken away. And so the question again for you is, will you trust Jesus or do you think something else will qualify you to stand before this God? When Jesus drank this cup for sinners. Brothers and sisters, don't be embarrassed about God's wrath. Now we, we think of anger because we know how, why we get angry. It's often arbitrary. It's not justified. It's, sin, it's sinful. Not God. And Jesus knows that God's wrath is rightly on an unrighteous world. And just think about what Jesus has done for you. You're not under his wrath. You're not destined for wrath. Changes everything about your life. However the world rages, whatever fury the world is in, you can just sit in the calm. God is pleased with you in Jesus Christ. Changes everything. Son was so willing, thinking about the cup, to drink it so that you would not have to. Jesus endures because the Father has prepared for him the cup. So the soldiers and the captain and the Jewish officers arrested and bound him. Jesus was taken to Annas. He was the patriarch of a family of high priests. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. Annas would have exercised probably decent authority over him. It was Caiaphas who back in John 11 silenced all of the religious leaders. They were worried that if Jesus kept growing in his popularity that Eventually, the Romans would, would take away all of the privileges that they had and would ruin their nation. And Caiaphas stood up and said, it's better for one man to die for the people rather than the whole nation should perish. He'd spoken better than he knew. And John, once again, wants us to know it. So Jesus has been betrayed and arrested. He's bound up in their hands. Evils like concentration camps and other evils are not difficulties from which Jesus is distant. He faced the greatest of injustice and evil beginning in that garden that night. Why? Because he was determined to drink the cup from the Father. He was determined to do what he uniquely could do, save undeserving sinners that we might be set free to live our lives knowing and enjoying the living God.